Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. Learn market knowledge and best practices to lead your company's success. And that's whatever type of company you'll work with. And laugh, I believe we have to have some fun along the way. I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or comments related to this show or about any commercial real estate endeavors, give us a call. Our phone number is 888 888- 612 show. Our email is info at CREshow.com. Or you can catch us on all the social media sites. Our show Twitter account is at CRE underscore show. Or you can always use smoke signals. Yes, we, we know how to do that. <laughs> but today we're talking about retail tenant strategies. We'll look at some of the key issues affecting retailers in this market, including online sales tax fairness site selection, and some of the important lease issues and other tips and strategies related to retail real estate. Please welcome our first guest, Laurel David, partner with the Galloway Law Group. She works in the loaning, uh, zoning and land use, and she's also state government relations committee chair for the International Council of Shopping Centers. Laurel David, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, we sure appreciate you coming in. And, and give us an update on the sales tax fairness issues. I mean, it, it is a big issue for the real estate industry and for the retailers uh, out there. What's going on? Tell us about Marketplace Fairness Act. Um, pleasure. Um, there are actually two bills right now. Um, the Marketplace Fairness Act is in the Senate and the House bill is called the Marketplace Equity Act. They were both introduced last year. Um, they would require online and remote sellers to collect uh, sales tax from customers who live in states where the businesses have no store or otherwise have no physical presence. Um, and in order to do so, the states would have to streamline their tax collection efforts, um, so create a uniform system for collection and, and uniform rules. Um, this would um, The purpose of this is so that there's not an undue burden on the retailers that are t- uh, attempting to collect taxes in many jurisdictions. I think there's something over like 9,000 different tax schemes in the United States. Um, for the states, this represents an opportunity to collect um, as much as $23 billion. Um, that's an estimate for 2012. With a B, right? With a B, billion. yes. <laughs> Um, and the, this, this tax is otherwise not being collected. Um, and remember, this is not a new tax. These are taxes that are due as a, a consumer. If um, you or I bought something online and we were not charged the sales tax by that retailer uh, for the online sale, uh, we are supposed to report that in the end of the year on our state income tax form and actually pay that tax directly to the state. So that means most Americans are guilty of tax evasion, is <laughs> what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, the other side of the coin is, you know, how do we get caught? But yeah. um, and, and actually, I'll talk a little bit about one of the state's efforts to actually try and track us all down. But um, the, the bills are really aimed at leveling the paying field. You know, if I walk into a store on Main Street and I have to pay sales tax, why shouldn't I have to pay that same tax um, if I buy something online? Yeah, and that, that's important to the, the retail, retail industry as well, and I think to to the local uh, governments and to the people in our communities that, you know, we need those businesses to strive. You know, we, we need them to do well, right? That's right. I mean, if you, there are one out of 11 jobs in this country are linked to the shopping center industry. Hmm. So um, it can have a huge negative effect on um, Main Street and, and brick or mortar businesses. Well, if it's approved, uh, what could the, the result be? What could happen there? 
Um, as I said, it could be a collection of $23 billion in foregone um, t uh, sales taxes that are currently not being collected. Uh, for the states, this is really important. Um, obviously, the states are uh, losing revenue. They've got budget shortfalls. Um, and in, instead of being able to collect the sales tax, um, they're obviously looking for other ways to, to close those shortfalls in their budgets. So maybe raising property taxes or, or looking for other income-generating schemes. Well, obviously, it's tax that's due, and usually governments are quick to want to collect those. What's the problem? Why, why is it not happening? You know, why, why is this such a big deal? Why is this taking so long? <laughs> um, well, it, it stems to um, two U, uh, U.S. Supreme Court decisions. Um, the last one was actually in 1992. It's, uh, and I'm going to read this, Quill Corporation versus North Dakota, for those of you who are interested in looking it up. Um, the Supreme Court held that um, absent congressional authorization, uh, no state may require a seller to collect sales tax um, into a state if the seller lacks a physical presence in that state. Um, now, remind, remember that this decision was in 1992, so that was when catalog sales were big, and I don't think anybody could have envisioned that internet sales would have been such a you know boon. Um, so, you know, obviously the, because of technology, the, the marketplace has changed. Yeah. Um, now, to address this problem, National Governors, Governors Association and the Conference of State Legislatures um, has, has started an initiative. Um, I won't go into the details, but this was the uh, attempt to streamline sales tax collection efforts and, and rules um, that I had mentioned earlier. There are 24 states that have voluntarily uh, signed up for this. Um, Georgia, where we are now, is, is one of them. Um, and they are implementing this legislation, uh, waiting for the Congress to pass their side of the bill, which is the federal bill, to, to make all the pieces fit together. And what do you think the timing is there? When will we know something? Um, they are talking about um, being able to, to work out a compromise between the two federal bills, um, hopefully before the end of the year. Um, so if, you know, you're interested in the subject and, you know, you are maybe even a brick-or-mortar business, um, do continue to lobby your representative or your senator. Um, we need to keep the pressure up. Otherwise, um, it could be next year before it is approved. And, who, I, and who is doing that? Who is supporting this act? Um, well, ICSC, of course. Um, there are about 1,700 retailers who are already collecting sales tax. Um, over the internet, um, this is amounting to about $900 million in sales tax going to state budgets. Um, the um, National Governors Association, as, as I mentioned before, um, other trade associations, retailer-based trade associations are also supporting it. Um, one of the biggest um, turnarounds really has been by Amazon. Um, Amazon uh, was a, um, an opponent of the bill. Um, they are now supporting it. Um, they are collecting sales tax in about eight different states now. Um, that is, I have to say, in fairness to the states, partly because the states have um, passed some laws which uh, makes it a little bit more difficult for Amazon to take advantage of this loophole in the federal law. Okay. Well, who is fighting it? If it's supposed to be collected, it doesn't seem fair. Who's out there fighting it? Who's the villain in this, <laughs> if you will? Um, well, there are a lot of people who actually think it's a new tax, um, which, you know, as I said before, if, if you have to pay it on Main Street, you should be, have to pay it on online as well. So it, it's, um, it's really leveling the playing field. 
Um, in the uh, current cl- economic, uh, economic and political climate of less taxes, there are a lot of people who say, well, we should address this by basically either abolishing or, or reducing sales tax overall everywhere. Um, and one of the most vocal pres- uh, critics is eBay. Um, eBay has um, a lot of its client base are small businesses. Um, eBay takes a great exception to the um, collection of sales tax um, being uh, put across the board. They want a sales tax exemption for businesses that generate less than $5 million in annual national revenue. Um, Right now, there are exemptions in the two bills. Um, uh, One is a million dollars. I think, I can't remember if that's the House or the Senate bill. Um, But the other one is $500,000. Um, as I say, eBay, eBay wants to up that up to a $5 million threshold. Okay, so it should turn out that if your sales are below those numbers or whatever number is finally decided on, then you're exempt from having to collect it. So you could buy from the really small online <laughs> source, right, and not pay. Right, and, and I think, you know, the, there, there's certainly a sense that there, there's, um, that, that would be fair. You know, the smaller companies obviously generating the smaller revenue um, there's, you know, a lot of paperwork involved in um, collecting these taxes, um, and I think um, they want to be, make sure these small businesses don't bear additional costs. Right, that makes sense. Well, what are companies doing to prepare for the potential adoption of these of these acts? Um, like I said, there, um, Amazon has already started collecting uh, sales tax in um, about eight different states. They're going to start in collecting in New Jersey and Virginia next year. So, um, so those of you in New Jersey and Virginia, watch out. Um, and then Indiana, Nevada, and Tennessee in 2014. Um, the, um, and actually, I, I should note that when they introduced the collection of sales tax in Texas, um, they did a, a study and found that it did not have any effect on the amount of online sales that were generated in that state. Um, and also, you know, an interesting twist to this, I think, is that the, the market demand is starting to respond to the inevitable approval of sales tax fairness. Um, there are about four or five different companies out there that offer software um, that would help bis- businesses collect this sales tax. The software is integrated directly to their shopping cart, um, and it would be at no cost to, to that business to collect the tax because the state would reimburse them for the collection of the taxes. Okay, and where's a site that they can get more information? www.21stcenturyretail.org. That's 21st, 21stcenturyretail.org. Laurel David, thanks for joining us. After a quick break, we'll have more guests joining us and more on retail tenant strategies. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com.
Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate-related subjects, do check out our on-demand show podcast. On last week's show, we shared the latest on the capital markets. We also had a recent show on syndications and group real estate investing, including some Reg D changes coming up, which should make advertising for investors legal and even allow crowdfunding. So be sure to catch shows of interest to you. You can catch the shows on iTunes or on your computer or smartphone at the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're talking about retail tenant strategies. We've been talking with Laurel David with Galloway Law Group. Let's add some more guests to the party. Please welcome John Neville, a partner with the law firm Arnold Golden Gregory. John's practice is focused on retail real estate and restaurant clients. Good morning, John. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. And on the phone with us from Austin, Texas, please welcome Greg Stanislawski, Vice President with the Retail Strategy Real Estate Group. Greg's company is focused on tenant representation, retailer services, franchising, and marketing for retail tenants. Greg, welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And, you know, one way retailers are improving sales is through multi-channel retailing, which is basically kind of using in-store, online, social media, mobile sites, and apps uh, to drive sales. And uh, sometimes the store is being used as as pickup locations. Greg, how do you see this evolving uh, for retailers out there? Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting, uh, an interesting phenomenon. You, we see now that um, the online, the websites, and the online shopping have become kind of the virtual storefronts for a lot of these retailers, um, and so you are seeing a shift where um, uh, customers and and uh, uh, people who are, are frequenting these retailers uh, are are more more likely to actually. Um, shop online and look for deals, discounts, um, and we've seen even now that um, I believe it was Best Buy has seen some backlash um, in the fact that um, they've now discovered that if if customers customers are less likely to come in and purchase without being offered some sort of deal, um, so it's kind of it's messing with it's kind of changed the psyche of the consumer, um, and so it's interesting to see how uh, retailers are um, evolving and shifting to kind of handle more of a um just a, a more um, virtual virtual marketplace. Michael, one yeah. thing we're seeing, too, is that the size of prototypes mm-hmm. seem to be going down. It seems like everybody now has a smaller prototype, a smaller footprint than they used to have. And that could apply to, to a 4,000-square-foot user. It could apply to a 100,000-square-foot user. Right. And part of the reason is is that you know because more people are buying online, there may either be a need to either show less inventory or maintain less inventory. Yeah. And, and, and so um, you know the good old standby is to take the big boxes yeah. that used to exist may not exist anymore. Well, that's working well. I know the last two items I needed that I walked to the store, uh, they were quick to say, look, uh, we don't have it in stock here, but we can get it for you shipped. It'll be at your house tomorrow. At no cost. Right. Just step yeah. right over here, sir, and we'll, uh, we'll we'll go online and we'll get it for you. So, yeah, and then you've got the, the, the mobile apps and things uh, that are helping uh, out there a lot too, right? Correct. That's right. You know, offering um – Offering discounts and and coupons while while customers are are shopping in the store um, real time it's 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 really um, it does create um, it's an interesting 
an interesting trend where um, it's a good way to, for retailers to, to push certain product lines and whatnot. Yeah, I know. When I'm walking in the store and I feel a vibration in my pocket, it kind of scares me sometimes. <laughs> What's that doing here? All right. Well, site selection is always important for retailers. Uh, what are some strategies and tips for retailers to secure good locations, uh, Greg? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first the first step and the key the key is to identify the the, the trade areas within a market that support your support your um, your concept um, and identifying that key trade area. In in a lot of instances, the good sites are not necessarily on the market. Um, so when we look at trade areas, we identify the trade areas first and then look into dive into deeper. Um, Sites that may necessarily or not necessarily be on the market, uh, re- struggling struggling tenants within a shopping center, mm-hmm. um, brands, regional, national brands that we know um, are struggling, um, and then contacting those landlords and property owners um, to see if there is possibly a uh, a tenant who's in and out of default, um, someone who has approached a landlord wanting to um, get bought out of their lease or looking for a rent reduction. Um, and so I think most of the time, the the good sites, uh, especially in a tight market like it is down here in Austin, Texas, um, the good sites are those that you kind of uncover through good old-fashioned research and, and communication and networking through the uh, the landlord-developer networks. Um, and that way you're able to uncover some great opportunities, and that's where we've seen the most success. Well, that's a good point. I mean, it's not always just going to be a site that has a big for lease sign in the window. Uh, a professional uh, retail tenant rep is going to have a few more insights on, on finding some great locations. Yeah, I mean, Michael, we did a seminar at Recon in May on site selection. That was our big, our big topic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was interesting because every broker approaches it differently. Every company approaches it differently. But, you know, there's a look and feel approach, right, where you sort of lick your finger and stick it up and find a good site. <laughs> and then there's a really data-driven approach. Right. And, and from what it seems, the more successful concepts, usually as they're teeing up their deals, are now doing both. Yeah. You know, if things don't even hit the radar, if they don't have the look and feel test right. passed. But at the same time, you know, the data is such key. And identifying your customer is such key. Yeah, I think you have to do both. I mean, I know there's some sites. There's like a site up in uh, North Georgia across from the outlet mall. And you would look at the demographics there and you'd say, no way. But some of the restaurants and stores there, that's their top store in the country because they don't realize that has such a huge draw from such a huge area because of that outlet mall. So, yeah, you've got to put the, the wet the finger and put it in the air. Is that what you, yep. you said, John? <laughs> okay. To add to that, I think, you know, um, Looking at the data is, is important, but it shouldn't be like, uh, like you guys said, it shouldn't be something that is uh, necessarily driving the ultimate decision. Uh, there are there are markets that um, the data doesn't paint the true picture. Um, right. For example, down along the uh, the border here in Texas, um, some of the strongest retail and restaurant sales in the region um, come out of the border markets. And when you look at uh, incomes and population uh, and densities, uh, they're very very low. Uh, but what what we're what we're seeing is, and what it what it, the retailers need to understand is that the the effect of the cross border traffic, the the millions of visitors that are coming across the the border crossings every day and shopping and dining in our restaurants, um, those those numbers aren't reflected in in uh, the demographic reports. And so it really does take some education on our parts to 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 educate our clients to to kind of paint the full picture. And it, and so it's important yeah. to rely on data but it is it is definitely a, a good, point and feel and get it on the good ground point. it's on the ground approach good, good point greg and who are the retailers that are expanding right now who's hot out there you know we're we're seeing a lot of restaurant groups that are um 
that are active right now. One that recently became active is, is Chili's. Um, they had six years ago they kind of put the brakes on their um, on their expansion plans, and it's good to see they're back now, um, active, growing throughout the country. Um, you know, six years uh, six years dormant has has created some opportunities for some infill locations, uh, some possible repositionings, uh, relocations, and trade areas that may have shifted. Um, in the last five to six years, uh, a couple other groups uh, that we're that we're seeing expand quite rapidly. Panda Express, uh, based out of California, they are very active here in the Texas market. Uh, Corner Bakery, uh, Schlotsky's Deli, Einstein's Bagels. We're seeing a lot of uh, the uh, the inline retail guys, the Great Clips, the Sport Clips of the worlds. Um, Aquatot Swim Schools is a concept that's based out of. Uh, Arizona, and they are actively um, and aggressively expanding throughout the country. So it's exciting to see that these groups are are uh, um, back at it and, and, and growing again. That's, Michael, you got to get Smashburger in there as well. That's true. Smashburgers, uh, they're expanding too. We have to take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll have more retail real estate intel headed your way. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. How would you like people to come to your website to hear the Commercial Real Estate Show? We can now download a free widget. This allows site visitors to access show videos and audio podcasts right on your website. Just visit commercialrealestateshow.com and look for the widget on the homepage. You can see how it works, and you can easily download it to your site. The good thing about it is after you load it, it works automatically. Well, today we're talking about retail tenant strategies. My guests are Laurel David with Galloway Law Group, John Neville with Arnold Golden Gregory, and Greg Stanislavski with the Retail Strategy Real Estate Group. Uh, guys and, uh, and ladies, the U.S. retail vacancy you know, has improved for four straight quarters around the U.S. with current vacancy at about 6.9%. You know, I think there's a big perception out there that there's a lot of vacancy uh, but you know, when you look at the numbers, uh, maybe not so uh, not so big big a vacancy out there. What are tenants experiencing in the market for available space to fit their needs? Uh, I mean, there's not been a lot of new, much new construction. Are tenants able to find suitable space that they need, Greg? You know, uh, here in Texas, we've actually been lucky. Uh, the economy hasn't affected us as as um, well. You guys didn't take part in the recession there, did that's you? That's right. <laughs> we we, we, uh, we were, were kind of in a bubble here. So um, you know, I know around the country, uh, construction and, and new new inventory has been limited. Um, here in central and te- here in central Texas, there's been um, quite a bit of, act- of of new construction and whatnot. And, and there's a lot of groups who are flocking to the market here. It's a strong market, um, and it's created a lot of um, competition. So are tenants so having really trouble shifting. finding good space, or that's correct. It's really it's really created a lot of competition. It's it's really become more of a landlord's market. Uh, it's it's bidding up the price. Uh, there's a lot of active groups looking for the same similar type locations, yeah. and it definitely uh, 
um, has been a challenge to secure the right locations. All right. And, John, you've got uh, national tenants that are they're leasing space off of the country. What do you see? Well, I mean, I think it, the the answer to your question depends on the tenant you're working with. You know, I mean, I have some concepts. You know, I mentioned Smashburger earlier. Um, you know, Smashburger certainly in certain markets, you know, it is the A number one desired tenant for a particular spot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in those cases, you know, I think the negotiating leverage is better. You know, if you have a concept that's trying to break into a market or maybe a lesser known concept, I think then those are the tenants that are really having to fight for spaces and um, perhaps concede some things that in 2009 and 2010 they weren't conceding. Right. And Greg, you've had to combat that as well with with some tenants that you represent in the market. You know, how has your services changed? Uh, What are you doing to help uh, tenants get into spaces or landlords uh, may not uh, think that they're a good tenant or how are you introducing them? Sure. So we've really taken an approach where we've created, and we think it's very important to um, present the tenant in the best light to a landlord. And so we've really spent, we spend a lot of time on the front end um, uh, educating the landlord on our tenants and, and what their products and services are and getting them excited, um, excited about the brands. Um, and that way they're more, more apt to providing incentives for our, for our clients to get into their shopping centers. And so uh, we do spend a lot of time. We have in-house marketing here, uh, marketing and branding that uh, puts together some pretty cool pieces for us that can get landlords very, very excited about um, a particular brand or concept. And so we spend a lot of time on the front end um, educating landlords on our concepts. And then, um, you know, as far as what we're doing with our our clients and retailers, we've really taken a digital approach um, to um, site selection tour books um, where we've created a digital format where we can um, share all of our information electronically in that way it's, it's easily disseminated to the operations teams to the CFOs um, the heads of these companies that are making decisions based on the materials that we provide yeah that's great when I want to change the discussions here for a moment and talk about some of the the more important lease terms for retail tenants in this market and John I want to ask you about SNDAs one of my favorite topics that's yeah <laughs> Regular yeah. listeners of the show know, and most of the listeners probably know that that's a that's a clause in, in a uh, an agreement that to allow the the lender to honor your lease in the event of foreclosure. And John, are you seeing uh, banks and landlords uh, a little more agreeable to working through an SNDA for a tenant? Absolutely. Well, to be to be clear, not to correct our esteemed mm-hmm. host, but uh, the the clause in the contract gives you a right to an SNDA, but your rights you get actually are in a separate document. So for our right. listeners, you know, just because your lease document might mention an SNDA um, or some type of a non-disturbance agreement, it really is a separate agreement. But right. to, an- to answer your question, yeah, because the bank has to sign that, the lender has to sign exactly. That, right? yeah, and absolutely. without and and without having a lender signature, yeah. um, any agreement in your lease is just between you as the, the retailer and landlord. Gonna, lender's not going to sign my lease for me. <laughs> It'd be nice. Sometimes they, the, the way they review it, sometimes I think they might as well do it. But um, no, generally speaking, um, they're, they're not going to. Yeah, um, landlords and lenders are getting more cooperative. I think certainly for our smaller users who used to get laughed um, out of the out of the room when they asked for an SNDA, they're now getting it. Um, some of the things you might have to concede sometimes would be either um, keeping the landlord's lender standard form, so the us attorneys can't negotiate it too heavily, or alternatively paying the lender's fees for that SNDA. We tell all of our clients that it's worth it. Right. You know, at the end of the day, any SNDA is better than no SNDA. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of safety there. Well, stay tuned for more intel. I'm Michael Bull, and you're listening to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We have some interesting shows coming up for you, including a show on the restaurant industry and a show on real estate tax strategies. And believe it or not, that show will be very interesting. I know some people think tax is a four-letter word, right? Well, you're going to get some good information. Well, be sure to catch shows of special interest to you. Sign up for a -a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're talking about retail tenant strategies. My guests are Laurel David with Galloway Law Group, John Neville with Arnold Golden Gregory, and Greg Stanislawski with the Retail Strategy Real Estate Group. And guys, there's been some issues uh, around the country with co-tenancy clauses and the clauses that maybe give some relief to a shop tenant if the anchor tenant uh, goes dark. And uh, John, what do you see in your practice uh, around co-tenancy clauses these days? Well, I think co-tenancy is becoming a dinosaur. I mean, mm-hmm. everything is a give and a take. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned in the prior segment that more and more landlords are giving SNDAs. Mm-hmm. I think um, one of the things that has come off the table is co-tenancies. You know, we've mm-hmm. got to remember that a lot of these shopping center defaults that occurred, you know, in 08, 09, 10, were due to some really aggressive co-tenancy clauses that caused the entire shopping center to fail, lose tenants, which in turn caused loans to default. Um, it's too fresh on people's memory, I think, to really have co-tenancy be an easy thing to secure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, frankly, probably in every hundred deals I see, maybe it's been in two of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, what are some of the other lease terms that are important to retailers in the current market, John? I mean, I think it's important to emphasize the question here, which is you said lease terms. You know, one thing that we constantly need to explain mm-hmm. is that the letter of intent, which I know we'll talk about later, mm-hmm. has the really here and now important business terms. And those are the things that people are focused on in order to make their deal. Well, what do you but, think should be in the letter of intent? Yeah. Sure. With the letter of intent, there's a long list. I, yeah. I And I can get in my soapbox there, too. I will say that one really big mistake I'm seeing made a lot here is um, the financial parties that are part of the deal. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, we'll see the tenant, and the tenant might be the parent company listed, mm-hmm. or the tenant might be an individual if it's a franchisee deal. Mm-hmm. You know, when the real intent is to have a new entity be formed, for instance, as the tenant, and to have you know, a guarantee, maybe a limited guarantee from that parent or yeah. from that individual franchisee. So get it right in the LOI to start with. If you have yeah. a guarantor, identify the guarantor. If you right. want the guarantee to be limited, say how it's going to be limited. And when you have tenant, it's almost better to have it bracketed to be determined than it is to list an entity you're going to change. That makes sense. But, but to go back, if I can, for a minute, just to the lease. Mm-hmm. The, que- the thing about the lease is that the lease is an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. It's something that you're not going to pull out and look at unless and until something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. So because of that, you know, you need to look at your lease as the rainy day, what's going to happen scenario, and uh, make sure there are clauses in there that protect you if, if things go wrong. We're talking about default remedies. We're talking about casualty and condemnation. Mm-hmm. We're talking about that SNDA. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's a laundry list of things. But again, globally, if people can just understand that the job of the lease is to protect you from bad things happening in the future mm-hmm. as compared to the letter of intent, which is intended to document the here and now. Right. And if you're a, t- a retail tenant and you're, or you're a retail tenant broker, John, what things do you think that should be in an LOI, letter of intent, and maybe what should be left out and uh, not covered until the lease is negotiated? Well, again, if, I, if my, my soapbox for today is identify the tenant party and the guarantor. Yeah. That, that, that yeah. more than anything will slow down a deal. Letters of intent, mention the SNDA mm-hmm. and the letter of intent. Mm-hmm. You know, mention, um, you know, I, I know I have one client who is adamant that they will not pay capital expenses as mm-hmm. part of pass-through cost. Mm-hmm. That client needs to mention in their LOI that capital mm-hmm. expenses are out. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, you, need, you need to identify kickout clauses. You know, if you don't hit an X number of sales, you can get out of the lease. Mm-hmm. Those are being granted, but those need to be in the deal sheet. Yeah. You know, if you don't intend to continuously operate, if yeah. you want the right to go dark after one month of operating, that needs to be in there. And yeah. from a landlord's perspective, if that landlord wants to have a penalty fee paid if you go dark or if you kick out, that needs to be in your letter of intent. These are right. things that I see that are slowing down deals because they're not fully negotiated sometimes by um, brokers that aren't as familiar maybe with the concepts they're working with. Right. And so those are major points. So you just can't leave them out because you really haven't negotiated a deal. What about capping expenses? I mean, some retailers are having issues with uh, expenses being passed through that they can't afford or they didn't expect. Uh, what do you, do you think that tenants should do there and should how much should that be covered in the letter of intent? Well, if you're going to have a cap on expenses, a cap on pass-throughs, for instance, then that absolutely needs to be in the letter of intent. Nothing makes people more angry than when us lawyers start interjecting things that mess with the business deal, mm-hmm. and caps on expenses mess with a business deal. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to clarify you know, what's in and what's out, and you know, if you're not careful, that can become a very long letter of intent paragraph that's not needed. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, general reference to a cap, identifying it as being a non-cumulative cap, ideally, which means that it's not going to compound year after year, but mm-hmm. it gets looked at on a year by year basis Mm -hmm. and clarifying that really the cap covers everything except taxes and insurance and maybe security and utility cost. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are all important things to the LOI. And do you think a letter of intent should have a time limit or a time frame that you have to go to a lease or the intent of that letter of intent automatically expires? You're smiling as you <laughs> answer me the question. Anybody who's heard me before, that's the most useless clause in a letter of intent that I think could possibly exist. It's not even worth the brain power, I think, to, to write down. Just <laughs> At the end of the day, if you're working on a deal and things are making, people are making progress, you're going to get the deal done. And if people aren't negotiating well and getting along in the sandbox, the deal's not going to happen. Some artificial date and a letter of intent only gives a broker an opportunity to call and harass us lawyers, and we don't like that. <laughs> I absolutely think that needs to be in a letter sure you of do. intent. <laughs> so, sure you do. It's like all deals need know, to be done at the end of every quarter, right? So right. It, it, <laughs> You know, well, it's one thing we're doing as brokers is we're trying to get the parties to honor their agreements and honor their letter of intent. And so if we're asking our clients uh, or the other side to honor uh, this letter of intent, it should have a time frame because obviously they can't honor that for an unlimited amount of time that really wouldn't makes sense and I can't ask my tenant to or my landlord to to honor that agreement uh am I asking to honor it for a week for a month for two months uh you know how, how long are they supposed to do that and also obviously keeps the deal time kills time, the, time, time kills deals I do agree with time. that we'll have to take a quick break I'm Michael Bull this is America's commercial real estate show we'll be right back The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. 
visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Well, welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Today, we're talking about retail tenant strategies. My guests are Laurel David, John Neville, and Greg Stanislawski. And uh, gentlemen, I'd like to talk to, and ladies present here, including everyone in the show, what are some of the most common mistakes retail tenants should avoid related to leases and uh, their locations, John? Well, I mean, I think that, again, it goes to this bucket of risk and the point of the lease. And the point of the lease is to make sure you have exit strategies. And so part of what tenants sometimes fail to realize is, is that when you're putting a deal together and you're all excited about the business terms, you need to think about what might happen if this goes wrong. So in other words, a great location with a great rent, but with something that has too much legal liability and the guarantee, or doesn't have any remedies for you as a tenant if the landlord were to go away or not do its job, mm-hmm. that might not be a good deal. So mm-hmm. it's important to, to, number one, identify those risks have a lawyer or have somebody in your team that helps you deal with those risks. And then again, I think have backup offers as well. Because if you have all your eggs in one basket, you know, um, then your options are really going to be limited if you don't get those terms you need. So I think that's key. So, you know, weigh those risks. So if you're trying to get an SCDA, you're trying to get a self-help set off right so that you can take care of problems if the landlord's not doing them. You should also just not do, you know, maybe you don't cancel the deal because you're not getting them. If you look at the landlord, you go, you know what, I'm looking at this. The, this building's full. It's got a very loan, loan-to-value ratio. Loan, Today. It's safe. Today. <laughs> That's here and now, yeah. Michael. We're talking about in the future. Yeah. And and you've got to you've got to get in that market. It's it's the only center you have. You obviously have to weigh your your options. And and it's it's good to have some uh, backup uh, places to go, right, Craig? That's right. Absolutely. And I agree with John. Um, having backup options is key when you're negotiating um, for locations yeah. uh, because you never know what, what can go wrong. And and uh, if you get down the road and, and, and come to a, a roadblock, an impasse that you can't overcome, it's it's you always want to have a backup because you don't want to yeah. you don't want the landlord to feel like they can corner you into corner you and and, and kind of bully you into agreeing to things that you normally yeah. wouldn't agree to that's a good point you know guys we have the southeast icsc conference coming up in atlanta october 9th through 11th at the the galleria and if you're coming up to the event come by and see us we'll be at booth 1034 well what are some of the advantages of being involved in icsc and, and what's new there john well i mean i'm really involved with the next generation program which mm-hmm. is um Um, the ICSC mentorship program for those that are new to the industry or those who have an interest in wanting to help those new to the industry. We've got a lot going on. I'm on the National Advisory Board. We just had a call this past week talking about what's going on over the next six months. And it's amazing the, the way ICSC is integrating all of its new participants into programs across the country. I mean, that, that is one of my sweet spots within the committee is to make sure that happens. But everything from the law conference to the Western Regional Conference to right here in Atlanta, you know, we've got special events to sort of bring both the old people and the new people together. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a small world and a small industry. And so the more all of us can know each other, I think the, the more we can work effectively together. ICSC gives us a great way to meet people. Yeah. 
And I, I would like to say that uh, Next Gen throws the best parties. I, I mean, special <laughs> events. Um, we, we try. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We try. For the government relations side, if you're a member of ICSE, um, there are newsletters um, that will keep you abreast of what's going on nationally, um, any laws that would particularly affect the retail business. Um, but also locally, they're each um, on the, the, the state chair for the state of Georgia. Uh, so I keep the membership here apprised of what's going at the local government level. ICSC is a wonderful, wonderful place to, to join. If you're involved in retail, you want to get involved with ICSC. Well, Laurel, John, Greg, thanks for sharing your insights with our listeners today. You can access the profiles, contact information, and websites of everyone on the show today at commercialrealestateshow.com. And now I have a question for you as a listener. Can you join us next week? Well, I hope so. We'll be looking into the restaurant industry, so be sure to tune in. And thanks for spending some time with us. I'm Michael Bull. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com.